Well, what makes a story of great triumph? Well, first, there has to be great adversity. There must be a great opponent who is suppressing or oppressing the people. Secondly, there must be a great hero, someone who leads the people in overcoming the adversity. The best heroes always come uh, as underdogs, of course. Third, there must be great results. The hero must win, the oppression must end, the victory must be felt for ages to come. These three criteria together lead up to a story of great triumph. And one story of great triumph that meets these criteria is that of William Wallace, the Scottish hero made popular in the 1995 movie Braveheart. William Wallace was born in, in the 1270s, not to a noble or wealthy family. And by the time he was in his 20s, there was turmoil in Scotland. Edward I, king of England, forced the weak Scottish king to abdicate his throne. He imprisoned him, and then he declared himself to be the king, the, the ruler of Scotland. As you can imagine, this didn't sit well with the Scottish people. They didn't want to be dominated and ruled by the English people. So the resistance began, and Wallace led this resistance. In May 1297, Wallace attacked the town of attacked the town of Lanark, killing the English sheriff there and 30 others, beginning a true rebellion against the king of England. He continued to attack the English strongholds in Scotland, trying to drive the English out of their land. And people started following him and joining him. Wallace achieved his first major victory on September 1297. Well, although he was greatly outnumbered, they managed to defeat the English forces in the Battle of Stirling Bridge. England lost its hold in Scotland. They, they pushed him out. Wallace became the people's hero. He was knighted as the guardian of the kingdom. It wasn't long, though, before England amassed an army to, to put down Wallace. They did so. They marched north July 1298, and they met at the Battle of Falkirk. The Scottish nobles promised Wallace their support in this independence movement. But when the time came, they, they betrayed him. They abandoned him. They left him on the battlefield alone, to fight alone. And of course, this time, he, he could not overcome the numbers. He was defeated by the English after being betrayed, but he escaped with his life. He fled to France, where he tried to garner support against the English. While he was gone, though, all the Scottish nobles got together, and they, they made peace with England. They, they abdicated their power and submitted to the rule of Edward the King, bowing the knee. Wallace was not consulted for this move. When he heard about it, of course, he was not going to compromise or submit to the King of England. And so a bounty was placed on his head, and he was finally seized near Glasgow in August 1305, transported to London. There he was charged with treason against the king, a charge he denied, claiming he never swore allegiance to the King of England in the first place. Nonetheless, he was still executed on August 23rd. His execution was brutal, where he was hung, drawn, and quartered. His head was placed on the London Bridge. His limbs were sent to the four corners of the land. Yet Wallace's martyrdom for Scotland struck a nerve with the people and paved the way for Scottish independence. And though total victory was not achieved in his lifetime, Wallace really triumphed for, for the cause of Scottish independence inspiring people after him to free themselves after his death. And he's remembered today as one of Scotland's greatest heroes. When you stop and think about it, though, when you stretch things out and you put them in that, that larger perspective, even stories like this, even stories of, of triumph, they're not that impressive. 
And why not? Because in the end, in this case especially, Wallace still died. And all those Scottish people he fought for, they died too. Even the English oppressors, they're dead. Everyone then died. I understand that the Scots were very concerned with not living under English rule. But really, they were all facing a much greater adversary, whether they realized it or not. Death. Death was coming for all of them. So, so what meaningful triumph can you really have in this life if you are still met by death? As long as death is a reality, all stories of human triumph really aren't that triumphant. Because all heroes die. All causes are futile. All victories are cut short. Ultimately, death is the one who triumphs in the end. This is always true. Except one time. And the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us about that one time when someone actually triumphed over death itself. This person still died. For the same reason that all people die, sin, the wages of sin is death. Sin results in death, physical and spiritual. But this person died for sins, but it wasn't for his own sins. It was for our sins. He died for our sins. He tasted death as the due penalty. But this person was actually powerful enough to overcome those sins, to pay for them, to conquer them. And when he conquered those sins, he conquered death itself and rose from the grave. Even more than that, us sinners who deserve that same death, we can actually triumph over death ourselves through this person because of this person. We can share in his victory, which was the greatest victory ever known, by trusting in him. It's no surprise to you, I'm sure, this person is none other than Jesus Christ. And Peter writes of his truly supreme victory at the end of this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. Now think of any story of great triumph in human history and they'll just pale in comparison to the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Not only did he triumph over the, the greatest adversary ever, death itself, but he also shares the spoils with those who look to him in faith. 1 Peter 3, let's read the passage which we began last week and we're going to finish today. Verses 18 through 22. For, he says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Peter's main point in this passage, as we saw last time, 
is to show how Jesus is triumphant over everything, over every evil that has ever plagued the world. Jesus conquers. Here we see there were these early Christians committing to follow Christ as Lord, but early on especially they were already suffering for their faith. And that could have been so discouraging to them, but it wasn't. Why not? Because, as Peter writes, Jesus triumphed over everything that opposed them, and they can share in that triumph through him. For one, our focus last week, Jesus triumphs over spirits. It sounds a little strange to you, perhaps. Jesus triumphs over spirits. This is talking, though, about demons. Not something we think about every day, necessarily, but... They are in reality those fallen angels opposed to God. The spiritual world and spiritual warfare are, are quite real. As we read last time, Ephesians 6.12, which says, Our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare, fallen angels, demons are are real, and they wage war against God and his creation. They've done so since the beginning. And God's people, of course, have the biggest targets on their foreheads. Whether we suffer in this life on account of spiritual warfare, like, like Job did, or whether we just suffer at the hands of the world, which is surely influenced by demons, the truth Peter nails down here is that Jesus has triumphed over these Spirits. The more you become aware of the spiritual warfare, the more encouraging this news is. Satan and those other mighty fallen angels, they had thought that they won the day when they saw Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah, crucified, dead on the cross. But Jesus wasn't defeated on the cross. In fact, in his death, he was accomplishing the greatest victory ever. Conquering sin, conquering death, rising from the grave, and now he's ascended into heaven, proclaiming victory and triumph over all those angelic forces who oppose him and us. And that's good news. It's good news back then, it's good news now, that none of those powers, which are real, can can take you down. They they can't harm your soul. They, They can't steal your salvation. They cannot win the day against you because of Christ's victory on the cross. And this was the, the first part of Peter's message in chapter 3, 18 through 22, which we saw last week. Now, as we learned, the big picture was clear, but then there were all those details in this passage, and, and we spent a considerable amount of time trying to unpack some of these details. Notably, in verse 19, who are these spirits? What is this prison? What, what is this proclamation? covered this last time, and I thought about you know rehashing this all today, but just given the, the complexity and, and the lack of time, I'm not going to do so. So here's the deal. If you missed out last week, you weren't here, and you're curious about a lot of what's going on in this passage, and we're not going to be covering it today, but instead just, just go online, go to our website, download last week's sermon, and you can get yourself caught up to speed on, on some of these things. Today we're going to move things along because we still have a lot of ground to cover. There, there's so much going on in 1 Peter 3. 18 through 22. It takes multiple passes to cover it all, and we're going to do that today. Last week, we narrowed in on Christ's triumph over spirits, and today we're going to narrow in on Christ's triumph over sin, the second major point Peter makes in these verses. 
Sin is our other great enemy, also responsible for our suffering. Even worse than spiritual warfare, though, our own sin debt will cause us an eternal suffering if left unanswered, unpaid for. Thankfully, Jesus has paid for our sins. He's dealt with them, dealt away with them. And as he triumphs over them, we do as well in him. This is our greatest victory. It all takes place in him is what we want to delve into today. So similar to last time, I've got no special fancy outline for you. We're just going to have one point and one point only that the triumph of Jesus over sins. That's it. Don't want to get bogged down. And we're just going to explore this again, explain it, apply it to our lives, and receiving the, the spiritual encouragement it provides. The triumph of Jesus over sin. And just like last time, the best place to start is verse 18. So look again at, at verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. He writes, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Someone titled this verse as Peter's John 3.16. It's his one-verse summary of the gospel. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And in just a few words, he succinctly captures the heart of the gospel message. Here in verse 18, Peter takes us back to the death of Jesus. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. It's straightforward. It's simple. It's true. It's also amazing to hear these words come from Peter's mouth. It's amazing to hear Peter say this. Why do I say that? Well, do you remember Matthew 16? It was a key point in Peter's life during the ministry of Jesus. Why don't you turn there? I want to remind you of this, and you'll see what I mean shortly. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples who they thought he was. And who answers? Peter answers. Of course, Peter answers. And what did Peter say? Matthew 16, verse 16, he says, You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Right answer. (laughs) You got it right. Peter understood that Jesus was the Messiah. Then Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples how, indeed, he he was the Christ, and how because of that he had to, verse 21, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter, though, didn't like this. He didn't like what he was hearing here. When he heard Jesus say those words, and be killed, it's like he stopped listening to everything after that, thinking to himself, this can't happen. I mean, this is Jesus. It's it's the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. He's here to, to save his people, to rescue us. He can't die. He can't be killed. And Peter thought, no, we're going to put a stop to this. Don't worry, Jesus, we're not going to let this happen. And so this is the best part, verse 22. He proceeds to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. 
verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Talking about his, his death, of course. You can picture the other disciples just kind of slowly moving away from Peter, waiting for the lightning strike. Though not possessed by Satan, Peter's words expressed Satan's same intention to hinder the atoning death of Jesus. So Jesus rebuked Peter in verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter didn't understand yet that Jesus had to die. It was part of God's plan. The Messiah was to come. The Messiah was to to die. Just, just listen to this. They knew it. They should have known it from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, that, that great chapter, verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Talking about the suffering servant. Putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Just think about that. The Lord was pleased to, to crush him, to crush his only son on the cross. At, at great cost, a great sacrifice. Why would God do this? And can you imagine seeing your own child harmed? And can you imagine being the one responsible for it? Why would God do this? He did this out of love to, to save. To save his people, to save his unworthy people. This doesn't make you eternally grateful to God. Nothing will. Jesus died, Peter says, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. This is talking about reconciliation. He reconciled us. Now, why do we need to be brought to God? Because we have been alienated from God because of our sins. Later, Isaiah 59, 2, he says, But your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God created us to, to live in close fellowship with him, holy, blameless, to, to walk with him, to serve him, to obey him, to enjoy him. But when man rebelled against God by sinning, a wall shot up between God and man. A, a chasm erupted between the two, so great that no man could ever cross back to God. And we were estranged from our Creator. This means not only do we miss out on, on the glory of, of just being with God, we also now must suffer the just penalty of our sins, being separated from God forever. And there, there's nothing you can do about this. You, you can't cross this chasm. It'd be like trying to, to jump across the Grand Canyon. Nobody's going to make it. Nobody can reach God. It is impossible for us to be reunited with God on our own. And because of our sins, God must separate us from himself forever. He's that holy. But Jesus came to reconcile the two parties. That's what we're talking about here, reconciliation. He, he reconciled us to God. He, he brought us back home by bridging that gap, paying for sins, restoring us to God. He, he bridged us and God. Speaking of bridges, uh, have you ever seen or been to the Golden Gate Bridge? 
remember looking out at it often while I was at Berkeley. It's just a, a beautiful, magnificent example of, of architecture and engineering. It's a great place. And it's huge. It spans 1.7 miles. It took nearly five years to build from 1933 to 1937. And just the amount of materials, 83,000 tons of steel, 60,000 strands of wire, which have stretched out, that's 80,000 miles, more than 600,000 rivets. All of this just to build a bridge between San Francisco and Marin County. Otherwise, back then, it would have taken about a half a day to, to drive to. And just think about that, 83,000 tons of steel, 80,000 miles of wire. It's just so massive. It's so much building material. This makes you think, how much building material do you think is needed to bridge that gap between us and God? And can you imagine? The answer may surprise you, actually. Though the gap between a holy God and and sinful man is infinite, it was bridged by just two boards and three nails. Jesus dying on the cross bridged that gap forever, enabling us to cross over to God. We read a little bit of Colossians 1 before. I'll I'll pick it up at verse 19. Just, Just listen along. Don't turn there. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to do what? To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet... He's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It's reconciliation. That's what he did. As Peter says, he came to bring us to God. Not to bring God to us, to bring us to God. And it was done the just for the unjust. As Peter continues, Jesus was just, perfectly holy, without sin, yet he died for those who needed it. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, the sinner, the unjust. That's us. And he bridges that gap. And he did so once for all. He doesn't need to keep doing it. He died as the once for all sacrifice for sins. Something to thank God for. I thank God you don't have to just continually sacrifice or require sacrifice or payment over and over again. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave the provision of animal sacrifices for the covering of sin, but it was never enough. It was never enough. Remember this, just for an example. When Solomon dedicated the temple that he built, they gave their animal sacrifices at that ceremony. Do you remember how much they sacrificed? 1 Kings 8, 63, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And just picture that. Just picture that, that never-ending, really, river of blood flowing down from the temple like a stream winding down a mountain. 
and just just try and smell that the never-ending aroma of, of animals, livestock, dead and alive, every breath just reminding you the cost of your sin. And it wasn't even enough. Millions of animals slaughtered, but they never could actually pay for even a single person's sins. It wasn't enough. But thankfully for Jesus, the, the perfect Lamb of God, his sacrifice was enough, and just once, once for all, forever. Peter says this in a few words. I want to take a little bit of time now and see this expanded into many words. And we find this in Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Just back a few pages to the left, Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews so aptly reminds us of of the same point. And I want want you to see the consistent picture painted in Scripture of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for sin. So turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to do a little tour of Hebrews, skipping over some verses here. But I want to show you a few. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he... Jesus, is able also to save forever. I like that part, don't you? To save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this he did, here it is again, once for all when he offered up himself. And this is our high priest as the author of Hebrews labors over and over again. He was just dying for the unjust, that once-for-all sacrifice. Now he's exalted, enabling him to save those who draw near to God through him. This is Jesus bringing us to God. Turn the page to chapter 10. Skipping over some amazing stuff in 8 and 9, but for the sake of time, I just want to show you a few passages in chapter 10, which really parallel our passage in 1 Peter, and that's why we're looking at them. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And think about that. The law with its sacrifices prescribed, it can never make you perfect. It can never present you to God. You draw near to the sacrifices, it doesn't cut it. You need to draw near to God. Look at verse 2. It says, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer have had consciousness of sin. That's true. If they could have saved, you just need to make your sacrifice and you're done. Not over and over and over again. But, verse 3, in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God gave this provision to provide a covering for sin, but they couldn't pay for sin. 
the true sacrifice was needed for that Christ. And so the sacrificial system is there to remind them year after year after year of their sins. But it's not over. Jump down to verse 10. He says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is what makes us perfect or sanctified. It's the once for all offering of Christ. Verse 11, every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which never take away sin. And there it is, the human high priest just offering over and over again and never taking away sin. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, just like 1 Peter says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for, <clears throat> for by one offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now what a contrast. The sacrificial system, it's not one offering, it's millions of offerings. It doesn't make you perfect, it leaves you imperfect. It's not for all time. It has to be done over and over again. But Christ came and just one time. Just It's done. He, just, he paid for your sins. They, they've been dealt with. Verse 18. He's finishing the section. He says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. It's done. If you're in Christ... If you're found in him, there's nothing left to offer. You don't have to go to church, be a good person. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to say a Hail Mary, go to confession. There's nothing left for you to do because it was done by him on the cross. There's nothing you could do anyway to make yourself perfect. He has perfected for all time those who draw near. You can turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3. And really, the author of Hebrews, it's, he's making the same point as what we have here in First Peter. Jesus triumphs over everything. And as the great high priest, which the author of Hebrews is, is so desiring to make that point, as Christ is both the offering for sin and the offerer, Jesus triumphs over sin. And it's just so clear in, in Hebrews and in First Peter. Jesus triumphs. Over sin. What the author of Hebrews says in many words, Peter says in just a few, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The triumph of Jesus over sins. This is all in verse 18. As Peter marches on, though, as we continue through our passage, he takes a detour into the triumph of Jesus over spirits. That's what we focused on last week. Let's pick things up in the middle of verse 20 of chapter 3, where he says, speaking about the days of Noah, that a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This is obviously referring back to Genesis 6 through 9, the story of the flood, where only eight people survived in all the earth. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three respective wives as well. Why does Peter bring this up, though? It seems kind of random, like, okay, now why are you talking about the flood? Well, first off, he's making a comparison between the situation of Noah and that of his readers. Both Noah and the Christians of Peter's day were, for example, greatly in the minority. There were just a few of them surrounded by a sea of 
of the world, sea of unbelievers opposed to them. Additionally, both Noah and the Christians of Peter's day were, were living in wicked worlds. The world around them was incredibly evil, surely made worse by that demonic influence we saw before. Speaking of Noah's day, the people there were, were so lost and hardened that after seemingly 120 years of Noah's preaching, not a single soul was converted. Nobody entered the ark with them to be saved. The ark itself served as a living sermon, both warning the people of God's judgment to come, but also condemning those who would not accept his only means of escape. It's kind of surprising to me, though, I don't know, that the evil world around him didn't try and, I don't know, burn down the ark. Just one ancient Maltov cocktail and that thing is up in, in flames, but for sure we know that God was protecting them. And this really is another comparison between Noah and Peter's readers, even though they were in the minority. And even though they lived in in a wicked world, God protected them and God saved them. And this is the the real encouragement that Peter's giving. Think about this compared to us, compared to Peter's readers. Noah, he was even more in the minority. There's only eight of them. And Noah... He lived in an even more wicked of a world. And back then, before the flood, people were murderers going free. Yet God still protected them and saved them. And the message Peter delivers to them and to us is that God will save you as well. If Noah and his family could make it in the ark against those odds, then by God's power you can as well. The only difference is that we are not being threatened by a flood of water. We are being threatened by a flood of sins, our own sins, which threaten to drown us eternally if we don't enter the ark, which is like Christ. All who enter him, all who go to him will be saved. This brings us to verse 21 in our passage where he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Remember this, we have just one point today the triumph of Jesus over sin. We're just trying to to pace through our verses here at the end of chapter 3, explain this point. And here in verse 21, Peter is bridging the gap between Noah's day, which he just talked about, and the present day, and he's making a point here about the triumph of Jesus over sin. And what's that point? Well, he starts off with an interesting phrase. He says, corresponding to that. It's just one word in the Greek. It's the word for antitype. What Peter's saying is that the waters that destroyed the world in the flood, they serve as some sort of model or type for Christians Christians today. The question is, okay, what is it then? What do these flood waters model? What, what are they relating to? And the answer he gives is baptism. He says, corresponding to that, what he was just talking about, baptism now saves you. Now, what does that mean? Thankfully, it's actually not too difficult to figure out. Peter's making a link between those ancient floodwaters and baptism. How does that work? Well, the water in the flood account destroyed the ancient world. The water was the means of death for the wicked. They drowned. They died for their wickedness as they were submerged underwater. Likewise, in baptism, the water represents the agent of death. When you're immersed underwater longer than you can hold your breath, you die. Humans don't do too well underwater for long periods of time. 
And in baptism, going under the water signifies your death. As you plunge down, you are dying to your old self. A death you deserve to die, for the wages of sin is is death. However, believers survive this death because they are baptized in Christ. They are rescued from death through resurrection. Christ's resurrection, which leads to their resurrection. As believers emerge from the water, coming back up, they're pictured as being cleansed from their sins, rescued from death, and entering into new life. They've passed through the waters of God's judgment unharmed, all because they are found in Jesus Christ. It's no surprise to see, then, the resurrection of Jesus mentioned in our passage, the end of verse 21, it says this comes, the salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in all this, what, what he's saying is that we're saved from judgment. By virtue of what? By virtue of Christ's triumph over sin. And that's the point. This is exactly how the New Testament explains and depicts baptism elsewhere. Just listen along to this. You can turn there if you like, but Romans 6, 3-5. through 5. The same imagery, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, and that's what you're doing in baptism, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, also in baptism. Now before we move on, I just want to say some people actually think, a few, some believe that the act of baptism, that the practice of baptism itself, saves people. Catholics, for instance, believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, that that you become regenerated when you are baptized. This is false. It's also clearly not what... Peter believes, and I want to show you that. Peter does not believe that the ceremony of baptism saves a person. The rite, the act, doesn't save anybody. And Peter adds a few words here in this verse to make this clear. He doesn't want anyone to have that misunderstanding of of baptism. And look at verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, but he explains. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. And the first phrase here makes it more than crystal clear. Peter does not believe the act of baptism saves anyone. Dunking a person underwater just cleans their outside. That's what he's saying. And that's not good enough, though. You need an inward change, and, and just taking a bath doesn't do it. And Peter makes explicit that the baptism which saves is not the outward one where you just dunk a person underwater. If that were the case, let's just take everyone to the beach and get everyone saved. It doesn't work that way. He says the power to save, it's not in the outward act of baptism, but it comes through, he says, this appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? What do we have here? This word for appeal can refer to a pledge or request. Second of all, the pledge or appeal a person makes when they get baptized, which you have to remember back then occurred right after conversion. This is where believers 
ask God or appeal to him on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus to cleanse their consciences from sin to save them. And this is exactly what happens when a person is saved by faith. This is why baptism is that symbol for the beginning of the Christian life. Jesus himself tied baptism to conversion and the Great Commission because it signifies that you have appealed to God in faith to not come under judgment, but to receive the forgiveness that he's promised to those who trust in him. The act of baptism produces no change in a person. Instead, it bears witness to the interchange that has already taken place by faith in the Savior. God doesn't use water to save people. He has chosen to use faith as the means to do so and appeal to him for a good conscience. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 1 Peter 3 ends with verse 22. You can look there. We observed this last week where Jesus was not just raised but also ascended and sits now at the right hand of God. A place of supreme authority and power. He's exalted, glorious, and triumphant. Jesus has triumphed over sin through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And he extends that triumph to you. A triumph signified by baptism and made real by faith. So this is it. This is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. This is the triumph of Jesus over sin, over your sin. We've got a, a little bit of time left. And what I want to do now, like I said earlier, to explain the passage, but at the end to, to apply the passage. And how do we do this? Jesus has triumphed over sin. So now what? What does that mean for us today in our lives? How, how does this help us live? It sounds nice, but what does this mean for us? How does this impact our, our daily lives? I want to give you some application. An application comes in many shapes and sizes. You can go many places. I want to give you some inspired application, which means it's not coming from me. It's coming from Scripture, of course. And we find this in Hebrews again. So on purpose, I want you to turn back to Hebrews one more time, back to chapter 10. I had us turn to Hebrews before because Hebrews and 1 Peter, they're making such parallel points. Jesus our great high priest, as Hebrews writes, he triumphs over sin far more than anything in the Old Testament. And we already read this firsthand before in chapter 7 and 10. I had to stop short of the end of chapter 10, though, because that's where the author, he, he culminates his point, which matches our point in First Peter, triumph of Jesus over sin. Then he gives us some application. Tells us now what? Tells us what to do now. And I think we're ready for this. So Hebrews chapter 10. Come to verse 19. After a lot of explanation and exposition, the writer of Hebrews gives us a very loaded therefore in verse 19. It's really culminating so much. And he's going to bridge the gap between Jesus as supreme and our daily lives now. Okay, so, so Jesus is supreme. Jesus has triumphed over sin. So now what? What does this mean for our lives? Verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since 
We have a great high priest over the house of God. Stop there for a second. Here he's summing things up. He's summing up each of his major points, each one towering like, like mountains of truth. He says, since we have confidence now to approach God by the blood, since we have that new and living way, it's open to us. And now since we have that, that new high priest, all this is to say, since we've overcome sin in him, now, verse 23, or rather verse 22, he says, let us. Three times, actually, he's going to say, let us. These are like collective commands of application. And let's look at these now. Because of all this, because of all this truth that he's just explained, what does he say? Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first application he gives is to draw near to God and to do so with assurance. He's saying, if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, then you've been cleansed, you've been washed, you've been purified. Nothing can undo that. Nothing can undo that. Not even your own ongoing sins. Of course, this doesn't give you a license to go on sinning. If you do that, you're just showing you don't have the the sincere heart he's talking about here. For the person who is sincere in his or her faith, the first application is just to rest. Rest in the truth of Christ's salvation. Don't let your own sins keep you from God any longer. Christ has died to, to open that way to God. And he's saying, draw near. Don't stay away. Draw near to God. Do so with confidence and assurance. Be assured in your faith. That's the first application. It's assurance. The second application is endurance. From verse 23, he continues on with that second let us statement. He says, next, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Now back in 1 Peter 3.15, he told us to be ready to defend our hope. Now Hebrews tells us also to hold on to it. Hold on to the hope you have in Christ. Cling to the promises that he has made to you to save you. And when you're suffering and the darkness is just closing in around you, you can get sucked down into that. But then the promise of God to save you, to not forsake you, shoots through that darkness like a a ray of light. And that's what you need to cling to, those promises of God to save you through Christ. For he who promises faithful, he's not going to go back on his promise or his word to save you if you cling to him. Therefore, trust in that and endure. Therefore, endure without wavering. He's saying run the race by clinging to those promises and finish. And then lastly, as you're running that race, help other people run the race too. And that's the third application. The third let us comes in verse 24. He says, lastly, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying especially to those who suffer, but just overall, help other people run the race. 
Push them to love and good deeds, which are the fruit of salvation. Encourage them to hold fast themselves and to draw near to God. Of course, for this to happen, you have to be around other believers, the church. So, so don't forsake assembling together, he says. Be with the church. Fellowship together. Make this your community. And don't be on your own. And get busy encouraging others to stay the course. Hopefully you can see, as Hebrews points out, how all of this flows from that one simplified truth that Jesus triumphs over sin. The point we've made, Jesus triumphs over sin, therefore, nothing can keep you from God any longer. Because of that, he says, draw near to him, hold fast to his promises, and then help others do the same. And surely the greatest application of all that we've learned is simply to believe, to trust God, to to have that faith in Jesus which saves. Just like Noah's day and Peter's day, we too live in an evil world where true believers are the minority. And just like that day as well, God is going to judge this world. Not by water, but by fire. But still he will rescue his people. So the most important thing you can do today then is to... Make sure you have run to the ark of God, so to speak, which is Christ. Enter God's safety through him by faith. Jesus has triumphed over sin, and he can extend that triumph to you if you are found in him. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, our Savior, the one who died for us and who has triumphed over sin. Lord, we know our sins. We know they are many. We know they are great. And we know they keep us from you. There are too many to speak of. And, and we know it, it creates an insurmountable object in our path, something we can never get over, something we can never get around, keeping us from you. There's nothing we can do about it. You sent Christ to do something about it, to bridge the gap, to, to bring us back to you, making us perfect in him through that death. Thank you for reminding us of these truths again this morning, encouraging us with them. Help us to not forget, but to cherish them and cling to them. And just thank you for the life you have gave for us in Christ. We cherish him. We believe in him. We run to him. He's our source of everything. May we be found safe and secure in him. Let us leave here indeed holding fast to your promises, drawing near to you, and helping others do the same. May we not lose sight of the fact that we're running a race together. May we push others toward a greater faith in Christ and a greater love for you, for all you've done for us. We give you our lives. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.